Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are studying the fourth portion of Parshat Behalotcha today. We are beginning in the tenth chapter in the eleventh verse. Vayhi b'shana hashenit b'chodesh hasheni b'asrim b'chodesh na'ala he'anan me'al mishkan ha'idut. Vayis'u v'nei Yisrael l'mas'ihem mimidbar Sinai vayishkon he'anan b'midbar Paran. Now in the second year, in the second month of the 20th, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the Mishkan of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. The date is shortly after the Pesach Sheni, which would have been sacrificed on the 15th day of the second month. But more significantly, let's notice, the 20th day, the second month, the second year, 222. The first stage of our redemption was the exodus from Egypt, followed by receiving the Torah. The second stage is going to Eretz Yisrael, the second stage symbolized by this date. Rashi notes the total length of the time at Har Sinai. They arrived the third month of the first year, according to Shemot chapter 19, and they remained there almost a complete year minus 10 days. When the Ashkenazim read this portion in the Torah, they are read with celebratory ta'amim, similar to the ta'amim mikra, the cantorial notes that are used to read the Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea. This is an exciting moment. It is a historic moment in which Bnei Israel are now marching on towards Eretz Israel and completing the Geula, the redemption from Egypt. Verse 13. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of Hashem through Moshe. Note our code word or code phrase from our previous shiur, Al Pi Hashem Biad Moshe, the cloud moving mentioned explicitly in the two previous verses, Al Pi Hashem, and Biad Moshe, which according to our interpretation in the previous shiur, refers to the blasting of the trumpet. Verse 14. The standard of the camp of the sons of Yehuda, according to their army, set out first with Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, over its army and Netanel, the son of Tsuar, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar, and Eliav, the son of Helon, over the tribal army of the sons of Zivulun. Then the Mishkan was taken down, and the sons of Gerashon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the Mishkan, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuven, according to their army, set out with Elitzur, the son of Shedeur, over its army, and Shilumiel, the son of Tzuri Shaddai, over the tribal army of the sons of Shimon, and Eliasaf, the son of Duel, was over the tribal army of the sons of God. 
Then the, the, the family of Kehat set out, carrying the holy objects, and the Mishkan was set up before their arrival. We have not completed the entire march, which we will complete shortly, but the description here seems to parallel the description that we read in chapter 2 of Bemidbar. Chapter 2 is prescriptive, instructing about what should be done, and our chapter, descriptive, what actually happened. We generally expect the two to be in sync, and when there is a discrepancy, that raises question marks. The classic example of a discrepancy between a prescriptive and descriptive section is the building of the Mishkan. Truma and Titzaveh are prescriptive, and Vayakhel Pikudei are descriptive. In Truma, God commands Moshe to build the vessels of the Mishkan, and only then is Moshe commanded to build the Mishkan itself. But in the practical description in Vayakhel, Bitzalel builds the Mishkan itself and only subsequently the vessels. The classic answer states that the commandment to Moshe is ideological, and the first thing in the Mishkan ideologically is the ark and the vessels. But the implementation has to be practical. One builds a house and only subsequently builds the furniture when there is a place to put them in. Back to Bimidbar. In chapter 2, the Torah prescribes the traveling of the Levim, apparently the entire tribe as one unit, only after the first two mini-camps, Yehuda in the east and Reuven in the south. However, in describing the actual travels in our chapter, the Torah describes something different. First, Yehuda travels. Next, the Mishkan is taken down, and the Gershon and Mirari families of the tribe of Levi travel with the Mishkan after Yehuda. Three, Reuven travels. And four, Kehat travels, as we know, with the vessels of the Mishkan, and are able to put the vessels in immediately into the Mishkan, for by the time they arrive, the Mishkan has already been built by Gershon and Mirari. Two major differences. Levi did not travel as one unit, but separately, and for good reasons. And number two, did Levi did not travel after Reuven. Only Kehat did. Most of Levi, in, in fact, traveled after Yehuda. Now, the only question is why? Why did the Torah in chapter 2 that prescribed the traveling in great detail not mention this? Why did we only discover this in our chapter? In fact, the Ramban brings a Midrash which gives an explanation of the order of events more in line with the second chapter of Bimidbar, implying a lack of congruence between the two. The Ramban agrees with what we describe, the four stages, but is not troubled by the question of the discrepancy. Perhaps we could answer in his name, though he doesn't say this by himself, Divrei Torah Aniim B'makom Echad Ve'ashirim B'makom Acher The Torah gives limited information in one place and completes that information in another. Additionally, and in that vein, we could say that when the Torah in chapter 2 stated Pardon me. Additionally, in this vein, we could say that when the Torah in chapter 2 stated that the Mishkan traveled with B'nai Levi after Reuven, it was referring to the heart of the Mishkan, the ark and the vessels. 
However, I think there is room to go in the lines of what we mentioned about Moshe and Bitzalel. In chapter 2, the Torah gave an ideological prescription. The Leviim and the Mishkan, the heart of the camp, should travel exactly in the middle of the camp. But our chapter gives a practical description. In order to give the proper respect to the vessels of the Mishkan, the structure must travel earlier, after Yehuda, to allow the vessels to be placed in the Mishkan upon their arrival. If this is true, this might, yet be, this might be yet another example of human initiative in Sefer Bemidbar, like the Nazir, and more, and more so like Pesach Sheni, where human thought gave way to a different way of performing things than was initially commanded. Let us, let us now complete this section. Gamliel ben Pedatsur, Vialtseva Mate ben Evinyamin Avidan ben Gidoni, Venasa Degel Mahane Venedan, Measef Lechol Hamahanot Litsivotam, Vialtseva Ahiezer ben Amishadai, Vialtseva Mate ben Asher Pagiriel ben Ochran, Vialtseva Mate ben Naftali Ahira ben Ainan, Ele Masai Venezer Litsivotam, Vaisa. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out with Elishama, the son of Amihud, over its army, and Gamliel, the son of Pidatsur, over the tribal army of the sons of Menasheh, and Avidan, the son of Gideoni, over the tribal army of the sons of Binyamin. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps, set out with Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, over its army and Pagiel, the son of Ochran, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and Ahira, the son of Inan, over the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. After that triumphant march, we move on to what appears to be a brief but surprisingly personal episode that has very little to do with the national themes and concepts that have been guiding us till this point, but seem to be a private matter between Moshe and a member of his family. Verse 29. Then Moshe said to Hovav, the son of Reuel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, which we will discuss shortly, We are setting out to the place of which Hashem said, I will give it to you. Come with us. And we will do you good, for Hashem has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. The first question we must ask is, who is Chovav? This is a new name that we have not come across yet in the Torah. Rashi says, Chovav is Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law. Moshe is talking to his father-in-law, the well-known figure that we have previously met who advised Moshe about appointing judges. Who is Reuel? Reuel then is Yitro's father. Why does it say in Shemot that the daughters of Yitro return to Reuel, their father? Because people also refer to their grandfather as father. 
The Ibn Ezra, while recognizing this position as a legitimate one, claims that Chovav is Yitro's son. Reuel, in fact, is Yitro, and Chovav is his son. He does not say that the term Choten Moshe, usually translated as father-in-law, refers to Reuel and not to Chovav, as one might want to interpret, but rather he brings a verse from Shoftim that says that Chovav, without mentioning his father at all, is Choten Moshe. Therefore, he explains that the term Choten is a broader one, which also includes the brother-in-law or the family of the wife in general. While Rashi makes sense because Yitro is a known figure, and it makes sense that Moshe is turning to him, as we analyze the rest of this short text, there might be a rhyme and reason to the Ibn Ezra's explanation, which seems at this point understandable, but somewhat random. Whether it be the Rashi's interpretation or the Ibn Ezra's, we will refer to him as Chovav, as he is called here in the Torah, to exempt us from this disagreement. Moshe is inviting Chovav to join Am Yisrael on their journey to Eretz Yisrael. But Chovav refuses. He refuses in a shocking manner. Chovav seems to be the opposite of Avraham Avinu. Avraham was told, Lech lecha, me'artzecha, u'mimoladetecha, to Eretz Yisrael, and Chovav is refusing to go to Eretz Yisrael, rather to his land and to his birthplace. If that is the case, he should be rejected. However, Moshe's response is not one of rejection, but actually of courting. Then he, Moshe, said, Please do not leave us. Oh, pardon me, back to verse 31. Vayomer al nata zovotanu. Then he said, Please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be if you go with us that whatever good that Hashem does for us, He will do for you. In verse 31, Moshe says to Chovav that we need you. And in verse 32, he says that you will benefit from being with us. How do we understand the background of this conversation? How does it fit into the greater context of Sefer Bemidbar? Why is Moshe inviting Chovav? Why does Chovav initially refuse? Why does Moshe insist? And what is the conclusion? Does Chovav stay or go? The Torah does not say. The answer to the final question is indeed not in the Torah, but in various books of the prophets. We find Chovav's family in Eretz Yisrael, implying that Moshe's offer was ultimately accepted. We already mentioned Sefer Shoftim in the war against Sisra. Yael from Chovav's family kills Sisra. And Shaul, the king, clears away the Keni family before attacking Amalek, the Keni family being Chovav's family. The entire Sefer B'midbar till this point is a celebration of Am Yisrael on all of their levels. The Kohanim, the Leviim, and the camps of the rest of the nation are divided by patrilineal lineage. What place does someone who does not have patrilineal lineage have here? According to a Midrash on the story of the Cursor at the end of Vayikra, the Cursor's mother was from the tribe of Dan, as it says in the verses 
Shlomit Bativri Lemateh Dan. But his father was not, rather an Egyptian. He cursed because he could not find a place in the camp. Moshe sees this exclusionary Am Yisrael-centric Sefer Bemidbar and invites Chovav to stay. You have a place with us. Chovav sees this and realizes he has no place and must seek out his own identity. But then Moshe says, we need you and you too will benefit. Even in what seems an exclusionary, patrilineal, closed system that is led by God, there is room for those who at first glance appear to not belong, and that on two levels. Even in a system in which God gives the Torah, God leads the people in the wilderness to Eretz Yisrael, Moshe says to Chovah, lanu We do not have it all figured out. We still need input from wise moral people. It is hard not to recall in this vein Yitro's appearance in Sefer Shemot, in which, before or after the giving of the Torah, depending on the commentators there, Yitro advises Moshe to set up a system of judges. And here Moshe has further internalized this point. He is not only willing to accept advice if offered, as he did from Yitro, but he is actually actively seeking Chovav's guidance. As Chazal say, Chochmah Bagoyim Ta'amin, Wisdom from the nations of the world, believe. God gives us the Torah, but Yitro's advice is still welcome. God guides us in the wilderness, but Chovav's guidance is still necessary. Number two, even in an exclusionary system with patrilineal lineage, in the land of Israel, the land of the Jewish people, there is room for the other, the ger, the stranger, to benefit, not as a slave or a servant, but to actually benefit for his own good. Two more points in conclusion. As we mentioned, while Chovav's answer is not recorded in the Torah, we see from Shoftim and Shmuel that his apparent answer was yes. But it is important to notice there that the gener- generations later they maintained a separate identity. Inclusion in, in Eretz Yisrael alongside the nation did not mean conversion and a loss of identity, but an alliance. Chovav has a strong sense of identity, el artzi vel moladeti elech, but he is able to align himself with Am Yisrael, go to Eretz Yisrael, and live there as a part of his own people similar to the Druze people in the state of Israel today, who actually relate themselves to Yitro. And back to the Ibn Ezra from which we began. If Chovav is in fact Moshe's brother-in-law and not his father-in-law Yitro, this means that Moshe is welcoming in someone who has not yet given anything to Am Yisrael like Yitro. He recognizes Chovav's potential and invites him to join. Thank you to my wife Atara for assisting me with this last piece. Verse 33. Thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Hashem journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Hashem was over them by day when they set out from the camp. 
So Bnei Israel are traveling in the wilderness, a three-day journey from Har Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, as mentioned previously in verse 12. And we discover yet another detail in the traveling rules. The Aron, the Ark, journeys out in front of them. For what purpose? To choose for them a place to rest. We have the clouds, the trumpets, perhaps Moshe's words, as we discussed in a Midrash, and Chovav as a guide, and now the Aron. Let's first note the similarity to the language by the sin of the golden calf. Why did the people request that Aharon make them a god? Asher yilchu lefanenu, that they should go before us, instead of Moshe. Now the Aharon is described as nosea alifnehem, traveling before them. This reawakens the discussion from Sefer Shemot, does the Mishkan predate the sin of the golden calf, or is it a reaction to that sin? A discussion for Sefer Shemot. A more basic question here in our verses is the identity of the Aaron. In chapter 4 we read how the Aaron was covered up carefully in various covers and was carried by the family of Kehat. Now we read that some sort of miraculous depiction of the Aaron carrying itself and leading the way. Immediately Rashi comes to our rescue and makes our life easy by saying that this was a different Aaron. One that went out to war with them that contained the broken first tablets. And the Aaron that, that Kehat carried was the main Aaron that sat in the Mishkan. The Ibn Ezra and Sforno make a different suggestion. Same Aaron, different circumstances. Generally speaking, the Aaron was in fact carried by Kehat in the middle of the camp, as we learned. But in this instance, the Aaron went before them. Why? The Sephorno explains that they were traversing large portions of the dangerous wilderness full of snakes and scorpions. The Aron went first to clear away the dangers. But in general, when they were traveling in safer places, this was not necessary, and the Aron traveled as described in chapter 4. However, when we read the next two psukim, it appears the Aron as a permanent presence in going before Am Yisrael. Verse 35. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moshe said, Rise up, Hashem, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, Hashem, to the myriad thousands of Israel." Moshe sees the Aaron as part of the battle against our enemies, not against snakes and scorpions, and this seems to relate to the future wars in Eretz Yisrael, perhaps like what ultimately happened in crossing the Jordan River and in the demise of Jericho in which the Aaron was present and apparently played a role. Therefore, it appears that the Aaron traveling in front of them is not a one-time event like the Ibn Ezra and the Sforno suggested. What takes our attention now, of course, is the double-flipped noons before and after these two verses. They're very dominant. It's very unusual. They do not appear elsewhere in the Torah. They appear in Tehillim chapter 107. What do they mean? Rashi, quoting the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, says the noons signify that this is not where these verses are meant to be. They are placed here to break up a progression of consecutive bad stories. 
the Ramban, while taking some issue with Rashi, tries to explain what the bad story that is before the nuns, Vaisu Mehar Hashem, that they left jovially from Har Sinai, lest God give them more commandments. Besides the fact that this is an unfair judgment, considering that it does not say this in the verses, there is one more major problem. Why is this not the place? Verse 33 state, stated that the Aaron traveled before them. And now verse 35 records what Moshe said when the Aaron traveled. It appears to me that the flipped noons serve quite the opposite function. The noons are a wall, a sudden breaking in the middle of Sefer Bemidbar, a sudden sad change of direction. Everything was in order for Bnei Israel: Their camp, the Mishkan, laws, clouds, trumpets, Chovav, and finally even the Aaron is going before them to disperse their enemies waiting for them in Eretz Israel. Everything is perfect until this point. Suddenly out of the blue, or perhaps not, but certainly within the vantage point of Sefer Bemidbar, the triumphant feeling of readiness and confidence to just go into Eretz Yisrael hits a snag. Things stop working, and from this point we have a long list of failures, one after the other. The Mitonenim, the Mitavim, Miriam, Chet HaMeraglim, the sin of the spies, Korach Vadato. it all unravels and brings Am Yisrael to a tragic punishment. We will read the first one today. Chapter 11, verse 1. Vayichi ha'am kimit onenim ra' be'oznei Adonai. Vayishma' Adonai vayiharapo vativarbam esh Adonai vatochal b'ktseh hamachane. Vayitzak ha'am el Moshe. Vayitpalel Moshe l'Adonai vatishka' ha'esh. Vayikra' Hashem ha'makom ha'ut ha'v'ira kivara vam esh Adonai. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Hashem. And when Hashem heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Hashem burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moshe, and Moshe prayed to Hashem, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tav'ira, because the fire of Hashem burned among them. An unclear complaint, God's anger, Punishment by fire, the nation cries out to Moshe, Moshe prays, the fire dissipates, the place is named Tavera. What did they complain about? Many commentaries see this as a continuation of what we previously learned or suggested. The difficulty of traveling for three days, or leaving a comfortable location that they had been used to living at for close to one year, or going to a dangerous part of the wilderness. But in fact, the Torah does not actually say what the complaint was, when in every story until now, the Torah reported in detail the complaint. This speaks volumes. The topic of the complaint is not significant. It has become a pattern of behavior that began in Sefer Shmot. Once Ben Israel spent a year at Har Sinai, received the Torah, built the Mishkan and Gog, organized to go into Eretz Yisrael, and nothing has changed. They are back to their old ways. They complain. About what? Exasperated? The Torah doesn't care to tell us. They are complaining. Like a child who always complains to his or her parents, the parents no longer discuss the content of the complaint because the complaint has become the language of communication. After all that has transpired, this is intolerable and demands punishment. A divine punishment. Sadly, the nation's reaction to is unsatisfactory. Vayitzak ha'am el Moshe. 
the, the nation calls out to Moshe. Whether calling out means to scream or actual prayer, the address of this cry is not God, but Moshe. And Moshe's words from Sefer Shmot ring in our ears. Who are we that you complain to us, say Moshe and Aharon? Don't complain to us. Your complaints should be directed to God. Why are you fighting with me, says Moshe? Moshe's constant cry to B'nai Israel is that he is not running the show. He is not the address. God is in charge. B'nai Israel failed to internalize this point and sinned at the sin of the golden calf because Moshe disappeared. Now, almost a year later, the sin of the Mitonanim seems to place them at the same point, not having progressed. And we will continue with the next sin at great length in the next lesson.